In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The Gospel of John is a beautiful work. Sometimes when you read it, it really does almost seem alive. (laughs) When John was with Jesus, he was just a teenager, most people believe. When he walked with him, when he saw him do miracles, when he listened to him teach, John saw Jesus transfigured before his very eyes and heard the voice of the Father. John watched as Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He leaned against Jesus' breast as they ate the Last Supper together. He saw him betrayed. He saw him mocked, tortured, and crucified. Ah, but he saw him rise. He gazed into heaven as Jesus assembled there. And for a lifetime, maybe 60 years, John reflected on all that he had seen, all that he had heard, all that he had learned. And then, after all of this, he writes this good news, this gospel of Jesus Christ. The first three gospels share so much material, they're called the synoptic gospels. I mean, they're like synonyms, very much the same. They were all written about the same time, years before John wrote, Even though they have much in common, they each give the wonderful story of Jesus' life on this earth in their own way. Matthew, interested in Jesus the King. Mark is interested in Jesus the Servant. Luke is interested in Jesus as the Son of Man. And these are all legitimate ways to explore the life of Christ. But all these years later, John was ready to write for a different purpose. He wanted to present Jesus as the Son of God. You see, John experienced Jesus as the Son of God. But now, decades later, most believers in Jesus had never physically met him as the King, the consummate servant, Son of Man. They lacked the tangible image of of the Son of God that John and the other apostles experienced. And some who were false teachers 
were challenging the reality of the life of the Son of God on earth. John then writes this work so that his readers, and in turn those of us reading it today, could in some way experience Jesus as the Son of God. Know who he is. Who he was. And in the introduction of his gospel, which we just read, he both shows us Jesus, the Son of God, and inoculates his hearers from improper belief, from heresies that were becoming rampant and that many would propose over the years. To this day, there are some heretics who tout these exact same errors. And we have to watch out for them. John showed Jesus and protected believers from error throughout his gospel with various themes that are advanced in the words we just read. Jesus, the Son of God, as light. The Son of God as life, as truth, and the need for us to believe. Now, John is the advocate of truth. <laughs> Seems surprising at first. We usually think of Paul that way. He was always pounding on the truth. But actually, John references truth far more. Over 40% of the time truth is mentioned in the New Testament, it's by John. And John very consistently speaks of belief in the Son of God. Almost half of the references in the New Testament. Now, interestingly, John does not use the Greek noun for faith even once. Not even once. He does not, like Paul, speak of the faith. Uh, the set of beliefs that are held by Orthodox Christians. He doesn't even do that once, not once. Instead, his interest is that we believe in Jesus as the Son of God. His purpose drives this choice, and we'll get to that in a minute. Right now, I'd like us to consider what is missing. Did you notice? It's, it's pretty startling when you consider that John made not a single mention of this in the entire introduction of the Son of God. And its absence is significant. What's missing? Love. He never mentions love. The man who penned the words, God so loved the world, didn't mention love in his introduction of God's Son. And everybody calls John the apostle of love. He described himself as the disciple Jesus loved. But he doesn't speak of love anywhere near the amount of the other gospel writers. Even in his three epistles, his little letters, he mentions love 30 times in those three little letters. But only 20 times is love mentioned in his entire, much, much larger gospel. Paul uses the word 91 times. Almost half of the uses in the New Testament are in his 13 books. I don't know, maybe John didn't write about love as much in his gospel because he wasn't worried about it. <laughs> he knew he was loved. It was a big deal. Or, or maybe because the love of our Lord and Savior was already so well attested by all of the New Testament authors who wrote before him, which was everyone. Every other New Testament book was written before John's. But I think it's because he has a purpose and he doesn't want to detract from it. He, he wants to focus on it. So what is his aim? To show Jesus irrefutably as the Son of God. In any event, 
John's primary interest in his gospel is not love or even the faith. It is belief. Belief in the truth, the life, the light. Jesus, the Son of God. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's purpose in writing is to give a clear understanding of the nature as well as the work of Jesus so that we may believe. John wants to say and to show that he is the Son of God. So let's go through John's introduction to learn how his original hearers would see the Son of God through John's words. And maybe we'll learn to see him in a new way ourselves. Okay, ready? All right, here we go. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning. Let's come back to that. Right now, I'm wondering... Who would John's readers, well, hearers, one person read and everybody listened, who would they think the word was? Now, the first thing to come to mind of a Jew might be the ten words. That's, that's what the ten commandments were called in Hebrew. So right off the bat, John has them thinking of the divine, right? It interested me to find out that some Jewish teachers thought that since Genesis 1 repeats and God said ten times, that meant that God created all things with his ten words. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Uh, now we have to admit there are many texts in the Old Testament like these. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. And he sent out for his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. But actually these verses are about God's word in command rather than his word given for men to hear. Still, sometimes Jewish leaders called the law, the Torah, they called it wisdom. And sometimes they called it the word or logos. So they, they would have been on board with John here. But by the time John wrote, the church had more Gentile believers than Jewish people who grew up with Greek philosophy. What would they hear when John said the word in Greek, the logos? The logos was the great idea, sort of like the unifying principle of all things for which our modern scientists seek. But not just an idea, more like a personified idea, some sort of perfect mind or spirit. Plato, the great Greek philosopher taught that all things issued from the Logos. So, like those raised in Jewish tradition, the Greeks would have been okay with what John said there. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Jews would not so much have blinked at this. I mean, the Word, as we said, also called wisdom, was often personified in Jewish writings as it is all through the Old Testament. Since wisdom is an attribute of God's, then you can refer to God by calling him the word That's, that works. But the Greeks? Uh, the Greeks would have wrinkled their brows. They thought more that the Logos was God, not separate from him. But not God like we think of him. Not a personalized being, but more the abstract concept of being, kind of a 
not really connected thing there. <laughs> but now John goes on to wrinkle the brows of the Jews. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Wisdom is God? Okay, God could be described by the word wisdom, but God is wisdom is vastly different than wisdom is God. God is the word is vastly different than the word is God. And our poor Greeks would be confused. You know, is the Logos God or separate from God? Which is it? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Whoa, 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 whoa. He, John, personifies the Logos. The word, he says, is a person. And he is separate, that transcendence, a technical term, from God the Father. A person separate from God, but at the same time God. John, how is that possible? The Jews would be probably confused. But if they understood, they'd be very angry. There is only one God. To them, it's a simple choice. One God or two persons. We can kind of understand their confusion when we read the most famous and important for those Jews of all Old Testament scriptures. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One. But what they didn't ask... (laughs) Is one numerical or descriptive? Now understand, you can only have one infinite eternal God. Okay, good. It's a long logical argument. It's fun to do. That's my kind of thing if you want to talk about it. But listen to how the NLT renders this verse into English and maybe we'll get an idea of what's going on here. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. See, the Hebrew word for one like ours, can also mean unique, without parallel or peer. You know, nowadays, we've kind of worked this all out. God is one in nature, eternally existent in three persons. But before the Word lived on earth, no one had considered whether the one God in essence could be simultaneously three persons. They not thought about it. And, you know, it kind of boggles the mind <laughs> even now. But, but at least we have a framework within which to understand these words. They had nothing, okay, nothing. So we'll just give them a break. The Greek thinkers, well, their world was turned upside down with these thoughts. They were polytheists. They believed in multiple gods. So two persons, sure, no problem. But But John is clearly saying there's one God but two persons. (laughs) Uh, This is the introduction to the Trinity in John's Gospel. and We're we're more or less used to the idea, but it was revolutionary then. A completely new understanding of reality. And in this statement, John refutes three errors. First, that Jesus was just a man. Maybe he even became perfect and holy, but just a man. Sometime after John, the Socinians promoted this heresy. Unitarians, Mormons, and some other groups are the modern heretics who teach this. Jesus was a man, just like us. That's not true. The second error, that Jesus was the greatest of all creatures, but not God. The Arians taught this. Arius uh, thought, well, maybe, maybe 
Jesus was an angel. Their modern progeny, by the way, are the Jehovah's Witness. They teach that Jesus was the first created angel and God worked through him to do the rest of his work in creation. They are heretics. <laughs> okay, just to be real clear. Uh, the third heir was made by a group called the Sibelians, uh, sometimes called modalists. They propose that the Father and the Son and, and the Holy Spirit are really just the one God appearing in three different ways. Different modes, so they're modalists. Uh, the closest thing that we have to that heresy is the Jesus-only groups. Did any of you ever meet any Jesus-only people? They were kind of big in the 70s, but they kind of died out. It, it's really, it's kind of a silly mistake because to whom did Jesus cry out when he was on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If he's both the Father and the Son, it doesn't really work. John realizes that, uh, well, there's some people that have kind of thick skulls. <laughs> So he makes it really clear. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Do you remember how John started? In the beginning was the word. Any Jew or educated Greek would recognize that John's first verse references Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Certainly, nobody could miss that connection now. Not a chance. And this crushes the idea that angels created any part of the universe or anyone besides God himself specifically here, the sun. Uh, this is one of the verses that the JW, the Jehovah's Witness, they simply change it. <laughs> In spite of the fact that we have thousands of ancient copies of John's Gospel, and they all agree, they contend that John could not have written this, uh, so those thousands of copies must be all wrong. Exactly the same all wrong, because every copy we have is exactly the same. Oh, well, some skulls are just too thick to get through. John's point, there would be no creation without the Word. Uh, that makes the Word, philosophers would point out, a necessary being. No Word, no universe. Hence, this person who is the Word is eternal. No beginning, no end. As opposed to everlasting like us, a beginning. You know, we all had a beginning, but we have no ending. So this refutes another idea that men can become gods. Uh, that's a Mormon doctrine. It's, a, of course, a heresy. Now, no Jew would ever think that any man could be God. That's, that would not be a problem for them. The Greeks, no, not them either. They thought that the physical was evil. Uh, only the spiritual was good that we are all trapped in evil physical bodies and only when we are freed from them will be, we be free of evil. Um, that's not the case. John's going to go on to bend their minds even more, but first he wants to establish his foundation more securely. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, having creation on their minds they would remember that God gives life and the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. But what did God mean by light? What would they have heard? I think they would have understood it from this verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Light meant knowledge or understanding to both Jews and Greeks. And, you know, hey, we've, 
We've all seen the light bulb over the cartoon character's head. You know, when you get it, when you understand, there's light. John is saying that the Word is the life-giving Creator and through the Word we gain understanding of our Creator. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. All right, very good, John. Nothing can stop the Word of God. He will overcome all obstacles. Okay. But some Greeks were dualists. They thought there was both an eternal good and an eternal evil. The light and the dark side of the force, right? <laughs> Sorry, I kind of like Star Wars. Uh, the yin and the yang, this is, you'll hear that. That's, they're, all, they're permanent. But John says, no, the word comes into the realm of darkness, and yet the darkness cannot overcome him. Darkness, then, is only the absence of light the light and the light is not balanced against the darkness but overpowers it simply by his presence he's there he overpowers it now this also refutes the idea that this is a good world and it, it just needs fixing up people are basically good you know they just they just had a tough life once we're nice to them they'll automatically do good that's a heresy and and, and well it's stupidity I'm sorry <laughs> it just is We are all sinners, and every one of us in desperate need of the light in our lives. If you read Genesis chapter 3, what theologians call the fall, you'll find that Adam and Eve, with all creation, were created good without evil, but they fell into sin, and every human being in all of creation has inherited that sin nature. And after you read Genesis 3, you might need encouragement. (laughs) So read the end of the story, the last few chapters of the Revelation. God will create a new heavens and a new earth in which no one and no thing that is evil will exist. All right, the question is, why would he need to do that, create a new heaven and earth, if this world was okay and just needed fixing up? Okay. This world is darkness. John reinforces this point as he also advances his argument. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So that verse 10 clearly refutes another error, what we call universalism. The idea that everyone will eventually be saved. They are correct that all humans universally have the same natural reaction to Jesus. It's a universal rejection of Christ. (laughs) So that's what it actually is. God's desirous will, what he would desire, and ours is that everyone be saved. But it isn't going to happen because no one wills it for themselves. And you might say, wait a minute. How then is it that he enlightens everyone? Everyone learns enough to know that they should know the light. Right? That's how much they're enlightened. Everyone's sins were paid for by Christ. You could say that he allows everyone a chance at salvation. Everyone sees his light. They see that much. Unfortunately, no one, actually not one human being takes him up on his offer. <laughs> Hold on now, good news to come. 
but not yet. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Not even his own, the Jews. They didn't even see the light. (laughs) This refutes the error that you can inherit salvation. God has no grandchildren. God does not have grandchildren. Your being a believer does not make your child a believer. Now, you certainly have a great influence on them, but you can't make them believe in Jesus. Each of us must choose Christ on our own. You know that saying, if your parents didn't have children, there's a good chance you won't either? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like that one. <laughs> you have to let that one sit for a moment. Uh, well, there's still some good news. Even if your parents didn't believe, you still can. The Jews should have believed, but many didn't. John was probably the only biblical author to write post-71, the real 71, you know, 0071. That's the year of the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple about which Jesus warned. Basically, he said, if you don't believe, everything here will be destroyed, remember? And of course it was. So imagine the sting of the Jewish people, what they felt when they heard he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Wow. How about we get to the good news part? Let's do that. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God wills to save his children. You don't become God's children by physical birth. Okay? The, uh, you weren't born by blood. You don't become his because of any human being, any will of any human being, not even yourself. God wills you to become his child and he gives you the right to achieve it. You know, glory, hallelujah. I'm, it just, he gives it to us. He makes it possible and he even brings us there. But even this refutes an error that you can save yourself or, or even want to be saved in and of yourself. Only because God decides to save us are we saved. Otherwise, we'd all be wandering off. But now John puts on a full court press. (laughs) What he is about to say is that which changes everything for everyone of every time. As a matter of fact, all time hinges on this point. This is the truth of all truths. Are you ready? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Wow! Nothing. There is absolutely nothing that could have prepared a person for hearing this the first time. They could, they could not have been ready for this. Neither Jew nor Greek would expect the Word to become flesh. this word idea. John doesn't use the word again after this. It's, it's a literary tool. Nobody else uses the word to describe Jesus. 
In his entire gospel, John doesn't use the word again to describe Jesus. This is the last time. He actually introduces in this, in this verse here, glory as of the only Son from the Father. He introduces the relational terms, Son and Father. It's the first time you hear them. And it's the last time you hear the word Jesus called the Word. He only does it once more in the Revelation. That's the only other time in the Bible where Jesus is called the Word. Basically, it was a literary tool to draw his audience in. So we don't want to make a doctrine out of the Word. That's not what John wanted to get across. This is what he wants to say. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That's the point. We have grace from God because of the fullness that is Jesus, that is the Word. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. From all that Jesus Christ is, we have grace, unmerited favor from God. Long before when God chose to show himself to Moses. This is what he said of himself to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness could be translated grace and truth. That would be a legitimate translation. Could it be that John wanted his readers to remember this passage? The law was given through Moses. God was making it clear to Moses that it will never be the law, but only his steadfast love, grace, and faithfulness, truth, that will save the children of Israel, or anyone else for that matter. John says that Jesus was more than the law. He was and is the Word. So it it's really heresy to say that living by rules can save you because that's what the law was, a set of rules. No one can earn their way to heaven. You know, a million Hail Marys doesn't get anybody anything. Okay, doesn't help. It isn't the words. It isn't what we do. The Jews back then had come to believe the law made them safe just because they were the keepers of it. Greeks thought living by wisdom would do it. <laughs> Wise, you get saved. Many people today think they must do enough good to be good enough for God. You want some good news? We will never be good enough for Him. That's good news. <laughs> but, but we can give all that up and from His fullness receive grace upon grace we just come to him with our filthiness and we fall down before him and the grace and truth of Jesus alone can and will make us clean and this is a point with which John concludes the introduction of the word no one has ever seen God the only God who is at the father's side he has made him known God is perfect. You know, how can we understand that? <laughs> well, Jesus has made us known, made him known to us through John. John lived with him 
and saw his truth with his own eyes. One day we will live with him. We will see him in all his glory and with our own eyes. But we will have to be perfect. Could be a problem, but it won't be. You know, we only have a hint of what we will be like then. We have no idea how we might live then, but we have Jesus. He came to bring us into that new world and to make it possible for us to have faith in him. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wanted his readers to believe in the light, the life, the truth that is Jesus Christ. So have you recognized the invasion of the light? That's our question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you have life in his name? Have you heard him speak light? We're going to celebrate today, as we do every month, communion, we call it. Jesus came with his disciples to a room. And when it was just the eleven, all those men who believed in him, including John, he took some symbols. These were symbols they were used to. They saw them every year. Every year they had a Passover meal. Celebrating that time when the angel of death was made to pass over all of those who put their faith in God. They put blood from this sacrifice of the lamb across the door, above it, and they walked through this door with the blood in it. And they would come in and they would celebrate this meal together. And Jesus took a couple of parts of that meal and he, and he gave us some symbols. He took these two symbols and, and it must have been interesting. You know, we, we see Leonardo da Vinci's drawing of the Last Supper. We see the people sitting at tables like we do. And the Jews did have tables like that. But on all formal meals, all important stuff, they had these really low tables, kind of like they have in Japanese restaurants, you know. And, and they would sit on them with their left arm like this. So they kind of leaned sideways against the table. So they kind of went around it in a circle. And they would, they would lean against it with one arm. And then they ate and drank and used their right arm for the food, right? So they, were, they would sit like this across the table from one another. That's how come John, who was, Jesus was here, and John was right there. And he just leaned back on Jesus to ask him a question. Uh, Peter said, John, John, John. <laughs> I don't know if you remember. He wanted to know who's going to betray you, and they still, they didn't get. But that's how come John could so be so relaxed by Jesus. He's kind of leaning back, and said, "Hey, what are you talking about?" Uh, it was a very, a very kind of intimate setting. Really, they were very, very close friends that did this together. But here's Jesus as the, as the master. The, uh, he even said at one point, "You call me master, and you're right. You should. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you, you can call me friend." Wow, now that was a good. That must have been exciting too. In the same evening, by the way, that he did this. But he took these symbols they were used to. And one of them was the bread. 
and he held it up. I, I just, I just kind of pictured because they were all watching him pretty close by now. I, I suspicion John was kind of leaning up watching him. They were all watching Jesus pretty close, and he picked up this bread, which was part of the meal, and he said, "Do you see this bread?" Yeah, he said. I want you to do something for me from now on. Any time you ever celebrate this, I want you to take this bread and I want you to think of it as representing my body. This is my physical body. I want you to think of this think of me and my body as you take this bread. But then he said it in a weird way, and you gotta remember, Jesus was like early thirties. He was a carpenter by trade for years. The man was in good shape. He walked all the time. He was in the flower of youth. In a sense, I'm 30 to me is youth now. I'm getting older. But he was, he was powerful. He was strong. He was young. He was capable. He was the son of God. Come on, they knew who he was. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you take it, do it to remember me. Jesus had been saying to them for quite some time, they're going to kill me. I'm going to be dead for three days. I'm going to rise again. They're going to kill me. I'm going to be dead for three days. I'm going to rise again. Over and over he told them, and they couldn't get it. Well, I kind of understand because Son of God. How can Son of God die? That doesn't make any sense. You can't. Well, that's kind of the point Jesus was making. This is my body. He has a body. He added a human nature to his person. I mean, he never ceased being God. He was always in his divine nature. Was, I mean, can't. it's not like you can take a break from being God. You know, he's God. But he added a human nature, and he really, honestly, completely lived as a real human person. He was a real man. He was, he was actually human. And he, he experienced everything humans experienced firsthand. And for some reason, and it is a mystery that we don't really and will probably never completely understand, but he needed to experience humanity all the way to death. And so he said to them, remember the door they just walked through, you know, <laughs> you imagine if we did that every Sunday? Let's just kill us a lamb and put the blood around the door every Sunday. Wow. There's a reason we don't do that anymore because Jesus is the end of that, the fulfillment of that. But they had just walked through a door with a sacrifice on it, with the blood on it. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And you see this every time you take this. Remember me. Remember what I've done. Let's partake together. Father, you sent your Son. He willingly came. He lived an entire human life on this planet. Worked a job for a long time. A couple of decades. And then he began to, to minister to people. He healed people. He raised people from the dead. He walked on water. He did incredible things, multiplying a handful of loaves 
one kid's lunch to feed 5,000. He taught and taught and taught the people and his disciples. And then he gave himself up. And he let those with evil intent kill him. And the person of the Son in human form experienced death. And somehow that's tied to us and our sin and our need our really what we deserve is death. We deserve the punishment of hell forever. And yet He came and took our place, paid for our sins on the cross, and you chose us and drew us to you. And through your wonderful grace, have erased our sin, done away with it. We're still on this earth. We're probably going to sin again, and you've erased that. And we love you so. And we are so grateful. Thank you, Father. And in this time when we remember the gift of your Son and the cost of our salvation, we look back and see that he was with you. Always. Has eternally been with you. Eternally he is God. And yet he became a man. Humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. But death could not hold him. And just as he had new life, you have promised us new life. We will see even beyond the words of John at one point, as John saw Jesus transfigured, we will see him in his glory we will touch the hands of Jesus. Oh Lord, bring that day sooner. And thank you that you bring us there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.